You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. Joining me this week is Alison Grieve founder and CEO of G-Hold, a multi-purpose ergonomic handhold that can be placed onto any type of tablet or reader, big or small. Alison first developed patented handholding technology for the food services industry after witnessing a spectacular accident involving a tray toppling over at an important function. A roller coaster journey and lots of persistence later. She has an exclusive deal with Amazon and Microsoft Surface and is selling on QVC and Home Shopping Network. So thank you very much for having me. It's very wonderful to come here and podcast with you. Thank you. This is going to be fun. So I'm going to keep it to one question this week, and it is from a lucky UK-based CEO who's receiving inbound sales inquiries from all over the world, including US, Germany, UAE, India, and beyond. And they ask, for our business to make the most of its market opportunity, we have to internationalize, and fast, in my opinion. We're getting inbound overseas inquiries with minimal marketing effort, and so far have accepted all the orders that we can practically service entirely from the UK, though that has meant long nights and early starts for my team and a seriously eroded margin. I think we have to internationalize now or face being copied or losing our niche. We could sell internationally and produce here, but the logistics is quite complex and the cost of Brexit means uncertainty is high. Or we could subcontract and produce closer to the markets, but then I'll need multiple local managers on the ground and local sales support. I'm getting a lot of conflicting advice and would love to hear from somebody who's been there and done it. Well, dear listeners, do not say I don't give you what you ask for. Welcome to the podcast, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So before we start dispensing or you just start dispensing wise advice, um, I read a wonderful quote from you while I was doing my homework before I came, where you described your journey as an entrepreneur as a tightrope walk along a roller coaster track, all taking place on Groundhog Day, with short rests on hot coals between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the best quote, and I wish I'd come up with that. So perhaps we can we could start with a potted history of what you mean by that and where you are now, where you've been. Yeah, so the journey has been a long one, over eight years. Initially, as you mentioned, starting with Safe Tray, which was um, a, a black food service tray commonly used to serve food and drink in the hospitality industry. Um, but ours had a secret device underneath it to help users to be able to hold the, the tray without it toppling over, creating these embarrassing accidents. So we launched SafeTray in 2010 and it achieved a lot of international traction. And we initially produced in China and then moved production to Scotland and achieved a half a million dollar licensing deal for that product based on the strength of its IP, its patent. We uh, we then came up with, or I came up with the idea for G-Hold when I did a lot of traveling for SafeTree and found my tablet really convenient, but a little bit awkward to hold. 
So um, G-Hold was set up initially actually to license to a potential big brother within that industry. But we um, quickly realized that by creating a universal retrofittable device, we would call it, um, we were able to achieve the margins that we were looking for and be able to partner with these big brothers um, by actually producing the product ourselves rather than having to license its Mm -hmm. IP. So that is the story in a snapshot of Safetree and G-Hold. So tell us a little bit about some of the the brands that you know you've just had kind of like a super exciting launch. So tell us about some of the brands yeah, that so you're doing. The latest launch is with um, Amazon. We've, de- we've created a G-Hold specifically for Amazon um, so that the device can be fitted onto their cases as well as onto their their fires themselves. Actually, the product is universal, so it will work on any flatbacks, you know, mm-hmm. device or case. Um, but we initially started working with a particular type of a- attachment, a Velcro, a low-profile Velcro material, which doesn't look or feel like Velcro, but it's incredibly powerful. And it comes from Velcro, the brand itself which is very exciting to me because Velcro has always been my favorite invention. (laughs) So to have accreditation from Velcro, which is still a private company actually, over in the US as brand ambassadors is very exciting. And um, it's enabled us to work on devices like the Microsoft Surface unit, which has a kickback stand. So you want to be able to move your holder Mm -hmm. around so that you can access the stand on the back. So that's how that came about. And um, it means that every time someone buys a fire, they're able to, um, they'll see in their shopping cart, uh, um, G-Hold as an option to add on to their purchase. So huge opportunity. And you've made quite, I mean, over the last year, over the last couple of years, really significant increases in the, number of units that that you're shifting yeah we um we have grown in terms of turnover and also in terms of the level of partnerships achieved we are the only the only holder approved for the design for microsoft surface Mm -hmm. program um which puts us in touch of all of their customers and on the microsoft store in the uk and of course this thing with amazon but also throughout education and some of our focuses in terms of the end users using tablets day in, day out, that has also increased in awareness. And we have a great team of educators who are mm-hmm. dancing and singing the G-Hold message around the world, which is just hugely gratifying to know yeah. that your product is actually being used in a helpful environment, which... I think is the dream of any inventor. And how's that working? So, you, you know, you talk about them as educators. Are they like your corporate partners? Are they your customers? Are they employees or a mix of all of them? How are you managing it? Because you're based here in Scotland in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. um, but you're selling all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I would call that the power of the partnerships. So uh, there are many educators that go above and beyond their everyday roles as teachers. Um, or educators in other environments uh, who will sign up to certain programs put on by Microsoft. For example, they have Microsoft expert partners who will learn about all of the software available through Microsoft and channeled through the devices themselves. So Microsoft Surface has made great gains in terms of 
um, the offerings that they offer from not only a hardware perspective but a software perspective as well. So software pieces like OneNote are mm-hmm. now used by teachers to be able to share information with their pupils from their pupils and really bring education to life in a way that's never been possible before. And Apple has an Apple Distinguished Educator Programme that has an army of educators, teachers and lecturers who use Apple devices to be able to what they call ditch the desk, you know, mm-hmm. make mobile more mobile and um, uh, make education more mobile instead of, to, you know, people sitting behind a desk and just listening to a teacher and writing notes. They're actually being able to collaborate a lot more with classmates and so on. So that's what's happening in education. Yeah. And it's also, re- you know, replicated across industry with more mobile workforces and more a more greater collaborative approach to working. So it seems, I mean, from viewing it at this moment in time, it, I don't know if it feels like this, but it, it seems like this has been a... a a clear, inevitable, planned out strategy. <laughs> oh, we're going to pick these brands and we're going to like do it this way. Um, having, you know, <laughs> having been a CEO myself yeah. and had board meetings and conflict and stress around how do we internationalize this? Are we ready? Are we not ready? Are we going to do it? Are we not going to do it? I suspect the truth is something more complex. Um, you know, has it taken several strategies and several approaches to find this one that's worked and have you come at it absolutely you know i call it um you know kicking the tires on different markets and different channels to identify who your winning horses will be but you cannot ever know with a new product or service or piece of software you will never know from day one who your winning horses are going to be. So there's inevitably a bit of a scattergun approach that you have to conduct in order to reach that next stage of internationalization. I do think that it's important to note that internationalization was part of our DNA from day one. Mm-hmm. And that makes it easier. When you're a startup, you're a bit like a speedboat. So whilst in stormy waters, you're more vulnerable you're also able to turn direction more quickly than if you're an oil tanker of an established company. So if you're an established company and you're looking to internationalize, you really have to think more like a startup because you're effectively starting up in new geographies. Whereas because we did it from day one, it was just a mm-hmm. startup and it didn't really matter where and we were. And were you servicing multiple geographies from almost day one? Yeah, and again, that's why the, the question that was asked is actually quite interesting because it's not just a straight yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. Um, with Safe Trade, we had to operate across several geographies from day one because it was a single SKU, a single product mm-hmm. that had relevance in a very specific industry for a single use. And as a result, we weren't able to, I think you have to hedge your risk a lot as a startup. And if you have a limited market in one geography, you simply have to be operating across several geographies. Absolutely. And although my company was software, not a specific product, I mean, we were targeting the top 100 retailers in any geography. So had we gone entirely UK only in our mindset, we'd have run out really even if we'd got like a 30% conversion rate, we'd have run out of customers within 
two years. Yes, exactly. So it's a straight financial forecast about what is the macro in this situation? What is the what is the the fully identifiable market for this product and will it be saturated really quickly if it's just one geography like the UK? And it's also understanding different cultures. So the culture of tipping and table service is not so high in the UK as it is, say, in the US. So that also played into it. Um, and then the third element to safe trade is a kind of a cultural attitude towards new products. So whilst in Scotland, for example, when people looked at safe trade, I swear about one in three people in a, at a trade show or at an event would say, I but that's cheating, that's cheating. <laughs> Whereas in America, people are like, great idea, that yeah. makes things much easier. So there's a kind of a cultural attitude towards yeah. innovations that definitely differs between geographies. Yeah. But with G-Hold, we knew that there are a billion tablets in the world, a billion tablets that have been shipped over the past six or so years. So the market is definitely much larger and the applications for G-Hold means that it becomes a completely different product in certain applications than it does in others. For mm -hmm. teachers, it helps them, you know, be able to teach collaboratively and not be stuck behind a desk all the time. For mobile workers, it means that they're swapping their clipboards or, you know, notebooks for tablets. And so they're using it as mm -hmm. a sales presentation tool and a way to work on the move. So having lots of different channels means that you can actually limit your geographies a lot more. So we really, really focused on the US market, but various channels mm -hmm. within it um, as a starting point for, for G-Hold. Um, and it's interesting because the person asking the question has got that challenge. I mean, we had it a little bit in my company where you can't see a pattern. There is no pattern emerging yet. You're either too early or... You know, it's still at that early adopter phase and you've got this type of company coming from the US, which is super exciting. And you go, can we service this? And it's always easier, of course, with software. It is easier than it is with physically manufactured product. Um, but yeah, okay, right, we can do this one. And then India is like, oh, yeah, this is completely different. We can do this. And not only are you dealing with multiple markets, you're dealing with multiple characteristics of the companies that are approaching you and the customers' needs and the features that they want. Suddenly, you're spread insanely thin and mm -hmm. you're not well in our experience we weren't then quite delivering anything quite mm -hmm. perfectly and I was in a hurry to get to the US for all the reasons that you talked about and I still probably think in retrospect we should have gone to the US so much faster and we did a specking trip and just feel felt incredibly possible to me especially the west coast because everybody got the technology the retailers were pretty innovative I had a list of 10 names that were up for trying something and then I felt like the brakes were put on me this is mm -hmm. slow down and have a plan and have a strategy and understand where we're going to do this and I'm not patient enough for any of that stuff but is that kind of what you learned between one business and the next it was to slow down more or did you not did you not need to what what were the big takeaways from first time and second time yeah i mean i definitely think that uh you know a board makes a difference we have a, a u.s non-exec who of course is he's an international guy and also he's based over in the states i always had a lot of friends and you know stateside friends which helps to have people on the ground as well mm -hmm. um and even 
just so far as people being able to do a little bit of reconnaissance, you know, and check out certain trade shows without you physically having to fly over there. But um, I think the fact that we, we our first big run of safe trays that were that that you know had had come through good off the production line, we split that stock. Mm-hmm between the US and the UK and it was the best decision I ever made because if you ask uh you know investors should we go to the states there's going to be hesitancy because there's risk aversion yep. and especially coming from a time where exporting to the US was a risky proposition then the answer will probably be no the mm-hmm. computer says no yep. the risk seems too high Whereas we took that action immediately and we'd already taken sales in the US before we took investment. Mm -hmm. And so it was crucial to the success of us as a company and also implanting that internationalization from day one. Yeah. Whereas I listened to, responded to and followed the advice. It's like, you've got to validate it here before you go rushing off to other markets. In retrospect... I, it was the wrong way around. I should have been validating it in the US because actually, for all sorts of reasons in terms of what we were doing, it was the market that made more sense. Uh, you know, it was one of the places where we kept getting inbound interest. When you say that you split the stock, did you ship on mass half that stock over and then yes. start deploying from there? So you kind yes. of like a hub and yeah. spoke approach. Exactly. I mean, there are fantastic logistics companies that will act as your importer and then you have stock sitting there ready to sell. Mm -hmm. And then it's just a question of taxation. I mean, taxation will always be complex, but, you know, people forget that taxation within the states is complex for people within the states. Whereas actually, if you have a great importer, then you're only talking about customs charges. Um, Another great thing to note there with G-Hold, for example is we have huge amounts of volume moving through HSN, the home shopping network mm-hmm. over there. They sell G-Holds on every single tablet that they sell on the home shopping network. Wow. So it's like an upsell yeah. item. It doesn't t- have a lot of airtime. It doesn't need it because it's basically a, an yeah. attachment. You know, it's all about attachment rates. So, and they must love that because it pushes the average order value up and it's a nice add-on and it fits with that whole selling model of and would you like an X with that? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's easy for us. Um, but what we did in order to simplify that process was we ship what's called DDP. It's an inquota, an export term, mm-hmm. which means that we cover all the taxation as well as the shipping. And it means that for them as receivers, they're not worrying about yeah. all of that add-on stuff. So some might look at that and think, oh, well, that's really taking away from your margin. But when you look at volume, you know, and often I'll come up with debates and people will look at margin and is this the right percentage or is that the right percentage? But at the end of the day, you have to look at a product like this and think it needs to have cash and volume. Mm -hmm. My strategy has all been about cash and volume. And if you can get good customers that pay up front and there is not a silly margin there, Mm -hmm. of course, but if the margin is there and the volume is there, then obviously it doesn't really matter what the percentage margin is. It's how much profit are you making per unit and how Mm -hmm. many units are you selling? And I suspect I don't actually know the person that's asked this question. And so I don't know precisely what 
business they're in. But I suspect behind that thing where they feel that the logistics are complex and costly and they're thinking about moving the production, I wonder if they're not fulfilling in dribs and drabs, you know, a bit here and a bit there, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, like you did split the stock, actually move it all across, take one big hit and then deploy with a yeah having a fulfillment partner rather than a manufacturing partner might be a better option yeah. for them it's difficult you know it sounds like at the stage that they're at there that they're at it's good to have some kind of high profile wins even if it's like a box going over to uae or a box going to america at least it is some validation within that local market but i would say that Again, it's difficult not knowing what the product mm. is. I didn't there, want to stalk them too much. Yes, of course. <laughs> and there's there's a few component parts. So I'll kind of break it down, actually. For example, they talk about what can, should we get first mover advantage, basically. Should we move forward like right now because otherwise we might be copied? There's quite a big element of do you have patent protection? Mm-hmm. You know, because if it's a patented technology then you should really be addressing the markets in which you're looking to patent the product Mm -hmm. with good, strong contracts and good, strong partners there because that really matters. If you're selling to, I don't know, Mr. Smith in India who's buying just a few units and and owns a manufacturing company, then you might feel a little bit more wary of that. So it really is on a case-by-case basis Mm -hmm. on the copying side. And as for the margin... I mean, the pound, if you're producing in the UK at the moment, whilst everyone, you know, you know, turns to the tissues when they hear about the drop in the pound, if you're a UK manufacturer of products selling in other markets and predominantly probably taking the dollar or the euro, you should be laughing right now. This is a good place to be Mm -hmm. producing stuff and selling overseas. You're not going on summer holidays and crying at the price of, yep. you know, that your, your holiday you're producing here, selling overseas. So if you're working your currencies properly and with good currency brokers, mm-hmm. then actually you could be making some good wins. And it's really interesting you talk about currency management, currency brokerage. Um, in, my, in, in one of my early businesses, we did a lot of international work. And although we were a two, three person company, it's something we had to think about really, really carefully because currency movement can wipe 20% off what you thought you were going to make. Yeah. And um, I used to work for HP a long time ago, you know, and the whole currency hedging was built into everything you did as you invoiced and all of that kind of thing. So it's interesting you talking about that is something that you absolutely have to think about, even if you think you're a startup and too small to be needing to worry about stuff. It's actually almost more important. And yeah, well, it is. And, and you know, we watch it all the time, but we've made mistakes. We made a 10 grand mistake by forward booking currency, by buying the dollar just before Brexit, because us along with a number of other people <laughs> did not predict that the results would wind up the way that yeah. they did. And so we bought the dollar when it was expensive to do mm-hmm. so with the pound. And then, of course, the pound plummeted. So that was a costly mistake. But then, you know, if we'd have held back and then the, it would have swung the other way, yeah. then we would have also been sobbing. Yeah. 
Um, but we were doubly sobbing <laughs> yeah. this time. <laughs> yeah, I remember doing a project at, out of Finland, and at the moment that we, the, you know, the moment they chose to pay their invoice, um, <laughs> wiped about eight thousand pounds off the value of the invoice. No, you should not have just paid us late for goodness sake. That's the thing. I know, I know. It's such a tricky. Yeah, it's a dark art currency brokerage. So you you just have to put your best foot forward. And what we've learned to do is just spot rate. So it, it means that we'll we'll only kind of guess a few days out, and we'll say, look, the money has arrived in the dollars into our broker's account, and we'll say, okay, well maybe the market might go in our favour within the space of two days. So mm-hmm. when it hits this rate, if it hits this rate, let you know, make sure that it's booked so that it transfers exactly then. And that's kind of the least risky approach, mm-hmm. I think, if you can wait a few days for your yeah. your thing, which, you know, we don't always do. <laughs> it's really interesting as well. You kind of saying, you know, talking about British, Scottish, UK-ish manufacturing in such positive terms because often in terms of the press you kind of hear this as as a dead inefficient incapable of scaling thing but actually in your terms it sounds like it's deeply competitive and an advantage not a disadvantage and perhaps the person asking the question is thinking a little not understanding the value of that as they're starting to think about offshoring their production because that feels like a huge risk to me. Yeah, I mean, I understand why, and certainly traditionally, you know, especially for, you know, we're we're a plastic product, which actually I'm proud of. I know that plastic has become deeply uncool, but plastic is, um, it's about who it's put into the hands of. I used to work in a plastic bottle factory, checking Domestos bottles for oil spots (laughs) and making cool sunglasses and bikinis from molten plastic bottles. So, with you on the plastic front, it's cool. So, you know, we, we, um, you know, plastic plastics if you're if you put a lot of care and effort into your product and you intend it to last for longer than the device to which it's going to be attached then um then it's a good use of resources especially if you're manufacturing locally i would say that a lot of people bought into the myth that that manufacturing in the uk would be more expensive than manufacturing in the in china or another market but when you factor in the fact that for a brand new product you know it's not like we're buying something off Alibaba Mm -hmm. and then sticking a brand name on it and then selling it as a me too product in the market in which case yeah definitely we go to China where they pile them high and sell Mm -hmm. them cheap but this is a new product and a new way of doing things and it's taken a lot of technical work and um, validation and optimization to bring it to the level that it is. I like to say it takes a lot of hard work to make a product look this simple. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But certainly by being so involved in the production of the product, we've seen where bottlenecks appear and we've seen where um, there are ways of optimizing the production line by focusing on sensible ways of assembling it, by manufacturing it, and in every single component part of that production line, we've optimized along the way. And it's reduced our cost price massively by doing so. But you do have to put that work in. Mm-hmm. Would I put that work into optimization if I had to jump on a plane and go to China 
every couple of months to make the product reach the point that you know we want it to reach no i don't think i would do that mm. it would be extremely costly to do so and you're dealing with you know linguistic issues and with miscommunications yep. by emails etc whereas we can jump on a bus and go to the factory and have a cup of tea and a hug and presumably uh, there's a degree of loyalty integrity and that's a long-term relationship partnership in the way that you talk about your brand partnerships as well absolutely relationships are so key both for selling you know people think about their customer relationships which are vital but also your supplier relationships are vital if you want to have a hardware company because hardware is hard mm-hmm. it's hard work it's rolling up your sleeves it's and getting way harder involved. than software well, <laughs> I can tell you, I, I continue to do software for a reason. <laughs> but when you get that right, then it's hugely satisfying. I feel like walking into the factory and smelling the smells of physical production mm-hmm. is like walking into the soul of a company. Yeah. And it makes me feel good. It's why I wanted to have a software company. You know, I... I dabbled with basic programming on the mm-hmm. Sinclair Spectrum when yeah. I was a child. I was naked and electronic. So, so you know, I do have a love and appreciation of software, but this kind of real thrill for me comes from that. From I'm a tactile mm. person, so feeling and seeing these these products and product it was so fabulous when we first met a few months ago at that breakfast on women's day and you were like handed us all that special edition (laughs) women's day product it's like i was was really kind of a little bit jealous it's like you have a thing you have a thing you can touch i still can't explain to my parents what i do like occasionally i'll show them something and they'll like go Okay, did you did you build that? Like, no, like the team built that. <laughs> no. Whereas if I could just give them a thing, I think they would they would be so much happier. Well, uh, I like to say that the internet of things relies on the internet and the things. And so we contribute to the things. Fantastic. And we hold the internet in our hands, so So I'm so conscious, A, you've had a a, 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 a mad busy day week year. Um, and also you've dispensed some super wise advice. But before, I was about to say let you escape, but I'm in your office before, <laughs> before you throw me out. Um, thinking back on this roller coaster type walk hot calls path. Um, and, and, and thinking back also to the question that the, the person's asking, how do I do this? As somebody who's been there or, or, or done it, have you got any kind of final thoughts or tips or wise words that yeah i would say that you know it's important to to become okay with the fact that there are no slam dunk right or wrong answers it's a journey you're gonna make mistakes you have to get comfortable with making mistakes because you can't move forward without making mm-hmm. mistakes that's I mean you say at the beginning yeah. of your podcast you know there are no mistakes that people haven't you know made before I, I would say that we have come up with some new ones potentially oh, congratulations <laughs> are you able to tell us about them or? <laughs> but it's, you it's, know it's, so, I mean that's the point of it right isn't it so, I mean I, I said to I said I think I was speaking out just recently and everybody laughed nervously but I meant it so no 
Last time I failed spectacularly, it was like a few paragraphs in the local news. Next time I failed spectacularly, I wanted it on somebody's front page. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant way of looking at it. That's the thing. I mean, uh, you know, you you are uncomfortable in a startup. You will remain uncomfortable. You'll have to have difficult conversations. You'll have to make difficult decisions. Life won't be black and white, but you have to become emotionally resilient to all of that roller coaster mm-hmm. journey because I don't know. I mean, you read about the success stories of companies, but all of the brands that I know and love and have had the great pleasure of meeting over the years from McSween's to Innocent Gun they all have battle scars Mm -hmm. to talk about nothing is a nice shiny finished product on the shelves of your supermarkets yeah all of it has been an emotional journey it has literally been blood it has literally been sweat and it has literally been tears and there's no way of getting around that Mm -hmm. so I think that when you're eight years or nine years into a company like this, you you maybe don't get so much kind of crazy excitement over the wins and you also don't have the terrible times under the bed sheets thinking, oh my God, I don't yeah. want to get out of bed. I don't know. I, I wish my mum would write a note and say the CEO can't come to yeah, work Yeah, that's how I feel. I'm like, I'm just a woman. I can, like, I'm just a normal person. But, you know, these are just, that's all part of it. And I, you definitely grow a thicker skin and become yeah. more resilient to those. You, you definitely do. And it's emotional resilience that will get you through and you'll realise quite how strong a person Mm -hmm. you are. Um, But just don't make excuses before you've even started for why you might fail. It's better to fail and learn. I mean, there's no point failing if you don't learn anything from it. But failing and learning is is just practice. Yes. And, And like, there's a reason why it takes years and there's a reason why it takes multiple businesses and you try different approaches because you have to keep practicing before it miraculously somehow simple the simple products you say you know all of these years it takes something <laughs> to make all of these years of failing to have the one success that everybody goes well that was an overnight success yeah You're that's right. it <laughs> so i mean yeah keep the belief because you know if you look at the stats then you will fail um but if you keep the belief then you you will succeed eventually you just have to keep going at it fabulous on that positive note Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to Vicky Brock and Alison Grieve, this week's Entrepreneur Agniance. If you like the podcast, then please do me a big favour and tell the world. And the world can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and my new entrepreneuragniance.com website. (laughs) 